0: Welcome to The Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we dive into dehumanization with David Livingston-Smith, I'd like to take a moment to personally thank a few people who have either shared last week's episode with Shannon e. French or who have tagged friends recommending the show. In no particular order, I'd like to thank Rob Hartley, Luke Millwood, Andrew Parsons, Nikki Coleman, Christopher Ankerson, Christian Nicholas-Brown, and Alison Nicholas from the Visualizing War podcast. Today's episode is another interesting one, and I would really appreciate it if you could tag two friends who you think would like today's show, or share the episode on your social media. And now, let's get on with the show. My guest today is Professor David Livingston Smith, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England. He has authored nine books. His 2011 Less Than Human Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others won the 2012 Anisfield Wolf Award for nonfiction. David's most recent book on inhumanity, dehumanization, and how to resist it was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. And his 10th book, Making Monsters. The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, will be published by Harvard University Press later this year. David has been described in the Times Literary Supplement as a philosopher seeking not just to interpret the world, but to change it. His book on inhumanity is praised by philosopher Cornel West as a philosophically sophisticated and prophetically courageous treatment of dehumanization, especially in regard to race. And by Yale University historian Timothy Snyder as firm but gentle, wise and accessible. University of Pennsylvania law professor Dorothy Roberts says that inhumanity brilliantly provides a chilling warning of repeating the past and a hopeful call to create a more humane future. And science journalist Angela Saini calls it, a chilling, comprehensive, and passionate account of dehumanization. Adding that Smith offers a devastating reminder of the capacity of every human to treat other humans as lesser. David is an interdisciplinary scholar whose publications are cited not only by the philosophers, but also by historians, legal scholars, psychologists, and anthropologists. He has been featured in primetime television documentaries, is often interviewed and cited in the national and international media, and was a guest at the G20 Economic Summit in 2012. To say that David has brought the notion of dehumanization into our collective conscience and discourse would be a gross understatement. Just Google dehumanization books and uh, David's name comes up first. I, for one, have certainly come across his work a lot in my studies and feel humbled to have him as a guest. David, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast to discuss this uncomfortable but critically important subject.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Just before we get into the subject, and, and just to set the context, this podcast, when it was born, the idea of dehumanization uh, and how it leads to genocide, uh, war crimes, and so on uh, was certainly part of the uh, initial idea of the podcast, so I, I really do mean that I'm humbled to have you uh, on as a guest. But before we delve into that into that dark subject, maybe we can start by exploring what motivated your explora- exploration of the idea of dehumanization.
1: Yeah, well, I can answer that in two different ways because there are two different aspects to it. One is certainly autobiographical. I, I grew up in the Deep South uh, in the 50s and 60s that was the Jim Crow era, the segregated South. And I was surrounded by the most brutal and explicit racism imaginable. Mm -hmm. You know, there was nothing subtle about it. These weren't dog whistles. These were loudspeakers. Um, I also grew up for a large part of my childhood in an extended family with my maternal grandparents. And they were both Jewish refugees from from Eastern Europe. My grandmother from Romania. My grandfather from Belarus. They came to the United States to escape the pogroms you know, long before the the Third Reich. Um, but Jewish families, Ashkenazi Jewish families, there, there's there's always a sense of an awareness of the brutality of one human being or one kind of human being against another. My grandmother was a self-educated woman. She had to leave school at the age of 14 or so to work in a sweatshop, but she was utterly brilliant. And she was particularly interested in the darker side of -hmm. of human beings. She, uh, She was interested and very well educated in the history of the extermination of Native Americans, anti-black racism, and of course, anti-Semitism. And her influence helped me to make sense of that world I was living in. So, and that's something, a sensibility I carried forward in my life. Also, oh, so the other side is is more academic. So I, you know, I eventually stumbled into philosophy, became a professor of philosophy in 2007, Uh, one of my books came out called The Most Dangerous Animal, uh, Human Nature and the Origins of War. And when I was researching that book, when I was researching the penultimate chapter, actually, I came across all this wartime dehumanizing propaganda, representing enemies as vicious predators or unclean animals and so on, representing uh, wartime activities as hunts uh, and so on. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. Then I, I really discovered that there wasn't much literature on it. All of it, virtually all of it was in social psychology. And I found that literature kind of thin, conceptually thin. And it was a friend who said to me, David, this has to be your next book. Everyone will have to cite you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The only one.
1: (laughs) So that's how uh, Less Than Human came about. And, of course, when I wrote that, I was figuring things out as I went along. There's been a 10-year interval, and I, I think I understand a lot more now about what I was attempting to explore back then. And I, I think it's a, just a terribly important, a terribly urgent
0: topic to address. Absolutely. And, and and I love that with all your books, you take us on your own journey. So how your thinking is evolving, so do your books. And I think having read two of your books, uh, uh, Less Than Human and Only Humanity, in very close succession within a matter of weeks, uh, I can see how that thinking uh, is evolving. I can't say that you're I haven't seen that you're changing a lot. It's more that you're getting a more nuanced view. Mm. Uh, but but one thing that I'd like to, be, before we touch on the books, just I find it fascinating that you, you grew up in the kind of Jim Crow era, which as you yourself described is uh, is the most overt form of racism in our kind of modern popular kind of discourse that we have. But you also grew up in a family household that had deep scars uh, as you said, from the pogroms uh, against the Jews and so on. Um, so you, in, in a way, you were walking in two worlds. You were, in within the house, you experienced one dimension of, uh, of, of, of human suffering and the narratives uh, that come with that. But then as soon as you step outside, you witnessed those very narratives played out in real life. How did that impact you as a child? Because that must have been, you know, perhaps confusing, or was that something that you wrestled, and that ultimately then also helped, kind of shape and mold you towards the the the, mm. um, I guess researcher and professor of, on this subject.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, so to add uh, another element, my my family, or at least my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the family was more complex. Uh, my mother, the mother side of the family, they were fiercely anti-racist people, mm. uh, especially my grandmother. So these two components were not entirely separate.
0: Mm. Now,
1: a child entering that world cannot help but see and feel that there's something terribly, terribly wrong. So I wasn't really socialized into Southern culture. My my, my family moved from New York City mm. to South Florida when I was three or four. And so, so unlike most of the kids I knew, I didn't take this stuff for granted. You know, I didn't see it as, as normal. And when you see that level of suffering, that level of poverty, you just cannot help But feel you know this is this is just wrong this is this is is atrocity and my grandmother's influence went a long way towards helping me understand the wrongness of it she she confirmed Mm. the wrongness
0: yeah that's yeah that's hugely powerful and it resonates strongly with me because as a child growing up in the in bosnia which was you know former yugoslavia was a you know, in my memory, a, a functioning state, a celebrated state, and then overnight it turned into uh, uh, mm. atrocities that led to genocide. And and you know, I was a, a ethnic Bosnian, uh, so members of my family were killed. And and as a child at the age of ten, I felt I was confronted by all of a sudden this very strange notion of well, why my why does my name matter as to whether I live or die? Uh, Mm -hmm. And when we fled, Sarajevo, my dad couldn't leave because he was a fighting age male with a surname that would have seen him killed at the first checkpoint. Uh, So I think that's that's it resonates so strongly with me because I think it's there is a there's a tension there that you describe as a child that you you were brought into an environment that was inculturated with racism that to you was strange, and which is which I find a perfect, uh, almost a a nuanced segue into a a really important part of your book, and that is that race is a cultural construct. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll let you describe that. What do you you mean by that? And then I'll follow up with another question because I've had some discussions with some peers of mine where we're still wrestling with this idea. So maybe I'll let you first describe.
1: Okay. So um, this is, in general, This is a pretty standard idea among scholars who study race. So there are basically three takes on race, three ways of answering the question. Is race real? And then the secondary question, if it's real, what sort of a thing is it? So one response to that is is what we philosophers call biological realism. Yes. Races are biological categories. They're perfectly real. They're as real as species and subspecies and so on. And it's biology that makes them real. Hardly anyone accepts this anymore. It was, you know, taken for granted, accepted doctrine. Now, you know, the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis certainly are (laughs) gung-ho about this. Uh, But very few scholars are so. If it's not biologically real, and it's real, well, what is it then? The other answer is that it's a real invention. Um, so, if if you think about things that are invented, some some things are real, and some things are. It's like the, the 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 zoom that we're communicating. Through right now is perfectly real. Dollars are real, marriage is real, contracts are real, but they're all inventions. Mm. Yeah, Uh, that's the majority position amongst people in the social sciences and the humanities who think about race. Race is socially real. Races exist, but they're inventions like dollars. The third position is that races are inventions, but they're not real. They're fictions. So they're like Bigfoot or Harry Potter or the tooth fairy, right? Um, That's the position that I favor. So that's the landscape. But irrespective of this fairly esoteric question, um, are races real? And if they're real, what makes them real? The more interesting fact the fact that we have to grapple with is that human beings think of them as real human beings racialize other human beings and that has very 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 deep consequences for human life
0: mm. that's uh that's wonderful that triggers another uh, thought in me uh, is it um benedict anderson imagine communities and and it's a, it's kind of this idea that what we perceive as real is real so you know nations countries flags They're only real insofar that they have been invented by a social group. Mm -hmm. And and it it, it resonates with me strongly when you say that uh, it is a cultural cultural construct that is imagined and not real. And and I think the proof is in the fact that when you came as a child into an environment where it was perceived as real, Mm -hmm. it was something that you recognized as, hold on, this is a – something's not right here. Uh, It's almost like it needs to be infused in your – uh, uh, you know, into into your upbringing, into your environment, into the social narratives that you how you explain and view the world, and that ultimately is culture, and culture is merely a habit of a social group, right? So yes,
1: that's right. So all, all you know, the people that I interacted with, young and old, were marinated in this point of view. Yeah, it seemed self evidently correct to them, but me coming from a different place, no, it seemed it seems very peculiar. Mm. So so look, one way to, to get at this is to ask, what are races supposed to be? And once we identify that, then we can look out in the world and see if there's anything that corresponds to that. In my view, well, first of all, a viable account of what races are supposed to be can't be too local, right? It can't be restricted to how African-Americans have been and are seen by many white people. It can't be restricted to how Bosniaks were seen in in the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. It can't be restricted to how Jews were seen in the Third Reich, right? And we can go on and on with many, many other examples. It's got to be broad enough to encompass all of these, these things. So I think it works like this. The idea of race is the idea that there are a small number of fundamentally different kinds of people, right? And these there are very clear divisions between these. Everyone on earth is either a pure specimen of one of these kinds or a mixture of two or more of them. Mm. That's the first component. The second component is membership is transmitted by descent so the the racial composition of your parents determines your racial composition, and that is unalterable, right? it's a it's a life sentence, as it were. Yeah. Third and very crucially, these kinds of human beings are arranged hierarchically. Some are intrinsically of greater value than others to to use the the language which is taken off recently in the United States, their lives matter mm. more than others. Yeah. and If you look at race in that kind of way, it applies just as much to the Rwanda genocide as it does to Jim Crow, as it does to the uh, the Holocaust and any other example you could think of.
0: So it seems to me that race is merely a a, a, a shortcut, a heuristic that we install in our mind to distinguish between us and them, because it could be, it, it, and I think you rightly point this out in the book. It's not necessarily just between black and white. And the Bosniak Serb example is, 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 is primary. Uh, yes. You couldn't tell a Bosniak and a Serb apart. And that's why it came down to the surname. But exactly. God forbid you did uh, a lineage check. You, it would be effectively, uh, you know, racial suicide, because you'd be ultimately killing your own, without a doubt, because there was so much uh, doubt, yes. and, and, and mixing. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, me- it seems to me it's such a just a shortcut. But then how do we um, and, and one of the things that, you know, was kind of discussed in, amongst the circles when I was just kind of chewing on some of these ideas with some of my peers, it, it seems to many people still that race is self-evidently still uh, a thing, which doesn't mean that somebody is racist. Which is, which is to me, uh, now, uh, almost some cognitive dissonance talking to you. Because if I'm seeing somebody as race and, and some of my colleagues would be describing race as, hey, you know, th- there's a, there's a physiological difference between somebody who's black and somebody who's white. Firstly, purely by the, you know, pigment in their skin. Secondly, by the density of their bone. But, you know, we can find overt differences. Of course when you peel it all back we all bleed red uh, right we all we'll have yeah. the same blood running through our veins but how do we how do we then t- look look someone yeah. who says that is already presupposing the
1: categories right white and black mm. so where do we get the category black let's go to the continent of africa immensely immensely diverse biologically diverse culturally diverse on what grounds do we somehow draw a line around everyone with skin darker than a certain shade, and say these are black. Well, it it actually that's a cultural invention. That's a social invention that 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 came with uh, the colonization of Africa, both by the Arabs and by the Europeans, where black in effect meant enslavable,
0: mm.
1: right? So you know, take a imagine going to West Africa, seven hundred years ago, eight hundred years ago people would be most perplexed if you referred to them as black. So what? No, I'm Ibo. I'm, I'm Fulani. I'm Akan. What's this black business? We're not all the same. We are very, very different from one another. Similarly, a Bosniak, a a, a Russian, a an Irish person, they're all white. Well, that's a political and social line that's drawn it's not a biological line Mm. right people often confuse race with human variation of of course there's plenty of human variation and plenty of it is geographically linked Mm. right so you know uh the, the the physique of at least some groups in East Africa is different than the physique of at least some groups in West Africa, which is different. we can say difference, 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 difference. That's not race. That's just the the spectrum of, of, of variation, which we find in all species. Race is this notion of kinds, types, black, white, and they change over time as well. Look, I would be mixed race to the Nazis my mother is Jewish. Now, looking at me, I'm six foot four. I have blue eyes. I had blonde hair when I had hair. <laughs> um, I could almost have been one of Hitler's bodyguards. <laughs> mm,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Not quite tall enough, but uh, yeah, yeah. why did Nazis require Jews to wear yellow stars? Because for many Jews, they were indistinguishable. Yeah. From members of the so-called master race.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so wonderful. I mean, it, it, it strikes me as, and we keep coming back to the point that, you know, we, we, we are a product of our environment and, you know, the, it, whether a physical environment or, you know, cognitive, cultural, humanly created environment so much like we've uh you know we adopt uh racism as a cultural habit within a social group so does you know the environment have an impact on how our physiolog, how we sh- how we've shaped uh physiologically you know the and skin color and so on um sure. what so, so then i guess the, the the cognitive leap here then is what is there a difference between race and uh, uh, uh ethnicity is one cultural one Actually, biological. Theoretically, it, well, race isn't actually
1: biological. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, so that will, so we can put that as I, a, as a cultural, uh, as you said, quite clearly, it's yeah. a cultural uh, invention, it, it, basically. Yeah. It, yes,
1: yeah. that's right. It's an it's an invention. So, but let's let's not ask that qu- quite that question. Let's ask a question next door: Is race supposed to be biological and ethnicity ethnicity cultural? Yes. Yes. That's, that's the case. But, but this is very important. Ethnic groups very readily get racialized, Mm. right? So what starts as an ethnic group can turn, can get racialized. These people can start being treated as an alien and inferior race. It's not a clean distinction at all. In theory it is, but in practice it is not. And Mm. You know these categories, and something else that should be noted here is these racial categories, these racial lines, these racial concepts change historically, geographically. Non-whites become whites, so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so it seems to me then there is almost a a sliding scale towards dehumanization, and all of these different groups. Uh, uh, or, or, or our need to delineate between us and them. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's, uh, I mean, I know the social identity theory talks about that, that there's a, we have an innate need to distinguish between us and them. But there's a difference between, you know, ethnic groups to then racial groups to then finally the, you know, the the, the bottom of the scale uh, of dehumanization. Is that Would that be an accurate, in my yes, mind? Yes, how, how yes, yes, pretty
1: much. So... So I, th- I think uh, there are actually three levels here. Mm-hmm. So there's like in-group, out-group biases,
0: yeah, like that's, football that's, games that's, and stuff, you know. Yeah, that's d- d- right. From d- d- as simple as that, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and and that's not necessarily toxic or dangerous mm-hmm. or anything. Like.
0: It can become dangerous. Yeah, unless you're in England, of
1: course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <long>. <laughs> Too soon, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I'll get (laughs) chastised by by my British listeners. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh,
1: no, that was good. Um, So race is hierarchical. So it's not just there's us and there's them and they're different from us. Race, if you look historically, how races are born, how groups get racialized, they're they're relations of domination, Mm. relations of conflict when it's advantageous for one group of people to exploit or otherwise do harm to another group of people, racialization is often one of the steps there, right? So if they're lower than us, then it becomes legitimate to exploit them, to to harm them, to, to exterminate them, depending upon how this works. So that hierarchical, the so the idea in in race and racism, I think, is very bound up with the notion of race itself. You know, if race is hierarchical, race has racism
0: baked into it. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, so um it's the active component of, of race almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Yes. So to racialize people isn't to dehumanize them. They're not less than human, they are lesser humans. Dehumanization demotes them more thoroughly, and excludes them from the category of the human altogether, or at least as an attempt to do so, because you know, from my book, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we, we, when we dehumanize others, we push them below the threshold of those who count as fellow human beings, and that licenses and motivates much worse behavior towards them
0: yeah it's a it 's a really interesting point um and and we 're very much starting to touch the actual idea of dehumanization but just before that if i if I can just ask one question and that 's this the the idea that racializing or race has within it infused this infused this notion of hierarchy that you know somehow my race, whatever that race is, is somehow superior to the race that I'm, uh, and and I'll just bring it in here that I'm fighting against, uh, and I'm just going to bring in the war context, uh, being mm-hmm. a soldier and, and and dealing with the idea of war in this podcast. And one of the things that I still wrestle with, and and I and I had a really profound conversation with your colleague Shannon uh, Shannon E French about this very point about collateral damage uh in say precision strikes where we have basically a formula where we can we will allow and sign off on X amount of civilians killed by uh precision munition to kill a you know somewhat a high value individual, you know, whether it's say an ISIS leader or something like that. Uh we can Comfortably acknowledge the fact. Not comfortably. uh, uh, Let me rephrase that. Uh, Certainly not comfortably. But we will accept civilian casualties, and and I'm still wrestling how we are able to do that without, in some way, racializing, dehumanizing, etc. If we're, if because to me there's a there's there's a strong link between race, dehumanization, and my disregard for the suffering of that race or that other. Uh, Over there, And that, to me, is part of our collateral damage estimate. I'm basically saying that the life of this terrorist is worth more than the life of these five civilians. But collectively, they're all worth more than my life because I'm going to drop a bomb. I'm not going to send my soldiers in there to to deal with it. Uh, So there seems to be something there that I just can't quite put my finger on. And I wonder if you can maybe help make some sense of that. Maybe I can. So, I mean, this, as you said, this is assigning values to
1: lives. And that's more or less a necessity in those sorts of circumstances, but that doesn't make the psychological cost of such judgments go away. Hmm. So there are pragmatic judgments that are made, uh, but those pragmatic judgments coexist with real flesh and blood human beings. And I'm of the opinion, as as you know, that part of being human. It involves a kind of reluctance, a kind of inhibition against against spilling human blood. And we find evidence of this worldwide, even in highly militaristic cultures like, like the ancient Romans. Mm. And, and we can't magic that away, right? And one of the consequences of this, I think, is that the psychological cost to soldiers, particularly those who are exposed to up-close and personal killing is grossly underestimated, often by soldiers themselves, mm. right? Now, these these can be very subtle things. As you know, war drives a lot of people crazy. Mm. And it's fairly recently that some have begun to acknowledge that part of that is the act of killing itself, the traumatic character of the act of killing. It's still... I think, grossly underestimated for obvious reasons. I mean, who'd want to go to war, right? If the, war has always been painted in highly unrealistic terms. Glorified and glamorized, glorified, and the blood and gore and stench were edited out of the picture. And for, for centuries, people, men who went to war were, basically thrown away as trash afterwards.
0: Mm.
1: It's a, like a machine that that eats people up. Um so I'm wandering a bit from from your question. No, not at all. Yes, at all. yes there there's there's for most people have to have something that gets them through that night in order to comply with the necessities of combat. And that's costly. Mm. That's costly to them, that's costly to their families, and it's costly
0: to the, the culture at large. Mm. So then, and and the natural question that follows from that: is it possible to kill in war without even without the humanizing? And I and I and, and I and I take even just the, the, the language or the symbols that we have or how we represent the enemy. We might not even use the language that you s- described that, you know, Germans about the Jews being cockroaches, vermin and so on. We might not even need to just by saying the enemy. Am I p- potentially progressively starting that downwards scale towards dehumanizing in order to facilitate at all the act of killing?
1: You no. Know, so there are two, two related but distinct
0: issues here.
1: One is what it takes to get people to kill other people. And maybe I should say a little bit about the backstory to that, why that's that's an issue. I used to get laughed at for saying these things. Uh, it's, it's now acknowledged a bit more. Um, so here's one indisputable fact about our species. We are hyper-social animals. There's no other mammal that comes anywhere near to our degree of sociality. And any social animal needs to have inhibitions against lethal or even sublethal violence directed against fellow community members now in most animals the community is the local breeding group but our hypersociality is such that it extends way beyond mm. local groups so when we when we cast our eyes on another member of our species in my view we cannot help but see human it's an immediate response bang looking into a a pair of eyes, and famously, of course, killing someone while looking into their eyes is one of the most traumatic experiences that anyone has. Drives people crazy, haunts them for a lifetime. Okay. So, but we're also really smart and able to think instrumentally, and we can think, gee, you know, wouldn't it be great? To those people living over on the other side of the hill, if we could like steal their stuff, enslave them, uh, you know, create room for ourselves, maybe wipe them out entirely. And you know, we we can make that call, and we often do. Actually, the, your collateral damage calculation is rather like that. Um, so, if you look at it as I've just described it, we're between a rock and a hard place. Mm. On the one hand, there are these deep inhibitions, probably part of our legacy as social primates. On the other hand, we can recognize the advantages of doing violence against others. In our endless creativity, we human beings have worked out various ways of getting around Mm. (laughs) this problem of selectively disinhibiting lethal violence. Um, Dehumanization is one way. There are other ways. The use of intoxicants, alcohol is, I'm just reading a, a great book called Drunk on Genocide about the use of alcohol during the Third Reich, huh. but also hallucinogens, uh, cannabis, all sorts of concoctions are used and have been used to, to disinhibit aggression. S- ritual practices, which are still used, mind-altering rituals as preparation for going into battle, and uh, certain religious ideologies dehumanization is one of these what these all have in common is they distance they create distance right that's the crucial thing they 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 create psychological distance just as long the development of long-range weapons created physical distance Mm. both shield the perpetrator from the consequences of their action right so yeah i think that for most people you know variation is the rule in psychology and biology there there are always people that are different Uh, but for most people killing in combat requires the creation of distance the creation of distance is not yet dehumanization dehumanization is a particularly dangerous and toxic way of creating distance dehumanization happens in in war when the enemy is is racialized mm-hmm. almost always so if you look at atrocities committed look look at world war 2 allied atrocities say against uh the japanese mm-hmm. versus the germans and vice mm-hmm. versa mm-hmm. right you know the, the strapping blonde farm boys from Iowa saw Germans as like them and likewise the Germans. Yeah. But the Japanese were racialized and the Japanese racialized Americans and Australians and so on as well. Yeah. So it's much much more vicious.
0: Yeah. Okay. So 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 that would then suggest that it's that that dehumanization is not a necessary component of war. Uh, but it's 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 one of the ways. Uh, but yeah. it seems to me then it's if, if it's a protective mechanism, yeah. it seems to me that it's the, and, and this is sound, go, going to sound rather awkward saying, but it's, it seems to me like it's, a, like it's a feature as well as a bug, obviously, but it's a feature in the sense that it, it, is, it creates the furthest possible distance between you and yes. those that you're racializing and therefore affords you the best protection perhaps, which okay. is a crazy thing to say, but I wonder if that's potentially true.
1: No, no, I think that is absolutely true. Now, I know Shannon makes a distinction between dehumanization in the sense that I use the term and dehumanization in the sense of seeing others as sort of objects, as things. Mm. And she thinks that latter is very important in in warfare. And you can see this in the language of warfare. Others are targets and and so on. Uh, Whereas seeing them as subhuman Creatures and monsters is very dangerous in warfare, but both are protective of mm. the of the perpetrator of the of the killing. Right. Okay. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it comes home to roost. That's, That's it was just going to say that,
0: yeah. And I am I'm just reading uh, and again on advice of Shannon and, and one of my previous guests Kian, as well I'm reading Jonathan Shays uh, Achilles in Vietnam mm. uh, which speaks to a lot of these points. Uh, this kind of the the pain and anguish and the then and, and and the cost one pays. Uh, yeah. Uh, with and also the the technologies we've used to enable killing, uh, technologies also being the kind of hallucinogenics and, and so on, and, and he speaks yes, about yes. You know, the, the Greeks and the, and the wine and so on as a, as a yeah. big component uh, uh, of all of this. Um, maybe we can now just delve into dehumanization itself, and you've kind of already alluded to it, but maybe I can ask you to first just define dehumanization as you see it or as you, as you uh, mean for us to understand it. Okay, so...
1: First thing needs to be said is that the word dehumanization means lots of different things lots of different people. It entered the English language around 1819 and it's it's not like there's a correct and an incorrect definition. So anyone talking about it needs to specify what they mean. Hmm. I'm very fond of making distinctions particularly about important topics because unless we make relevant distinctions we don't stand a chance in hell of intervening properly in some of these, you know, really dangerous, awful things. So what I mean by dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. Now, notice I didn't say as animals. Yeah. That's part of the picture, but... It doesn't stay. <laughs> that's how dehumanization starts, but that's not how it stays. It, people are transformed into monstrous, demonic beings, and that's one reason why dehumanization is so,
0: so very, very dangerous. Right. Which is, and and that kind of now leads me to the next point. I think this is where you you're talking about the psychological dimension yeah. of dehumanization, but you're also quite. Eloquently explained that it does have a social and political dimension as well, which is where it becomes, uh, which which is how it then becomes active uh, and can turn into, say, genocide or, or or gross abuses of human rights and so on. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that
1: that that's accurate. So this is something I didn't understand in when I wrote less than human, and I think I understand now. So dehumanization doesn't arise spontaneously in the human mind. It's not like out of nowhere, people think of other people as, as non-human, as subhuman. In fact, our psychology works against that. Our exquisite sensitivity as social primates to others inclines us to see them as, as fellow human beings. I see dehumanization as a psychological response to political forces. Mm. So if you look at all the examples of dehumanization, you know, that that can be studied they begin with ideology and propaganda, right? They don't, they're, they're not spontaneous. Th- it's not spontaneous. People with an investment in getting us to do terrible things to other people give us a picture of those other people as less than human. And in doing that skillfully, exploit certain psychological vulnerabilities that we have that enables us to very readily fall into that way of thinking we are all vulnerable to this i mean i can't emphasize this enough skillful propagandists are hard to resist particularly when their target audience already feels helpless and vulnerable Mm. right the propagandist gins this up Yeah. And, you know, we are all suckers for someone promising salvation uh, when we feel helpless. That's, that's a fact of, of the human condition. Uh, and part of the, the pitch is often these others, you know, they are these demonic others. I mean, you could take Hitler and Goebbels. I'm very influenced by a paper that was written in 1941 by a psychoanalyst named Roger Monicarle called The Psychology of Propaganda. And Monte Carl was a guy who is a very interesting person. I'll I'll resist talking about his his life here. but He was invited by a friend, an Australian diplomat to visit Germany in 1932. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Hitler comes to power in 1933. Mm It was, there were all these elections going on. So Hitler is flying from one town to another, making these stump speeches. And so he attends a couple of these, and he's very, very fascinated by this. And basically, he describes his experiences in this 1941 paper. And he says, look, here's what I saw Hitler and Goebbels doing. First, they get their audience to feel depressed, hopeless, bleak. We've been, we were humiliated in the, you know, with the Treaty of Versailles, the conclusion of the First World War, Our our great destiny, the great destiny of our people is now in the dust. And so, once he works the audience into what Moni Carl calls an orgy of self pity, then he changes his tune. You say, Now, yeah, but it wasn't your fault, you know. It was the Jews and the communists. Um, Now they're in a paranoid state. That's usually where the dehumanizing pitch comes in. Mm. And then to top it off, then then is the magical solution. I'll make Germany great again. Only I can save us. <laughs> you know. And if you've swallowed the first two, frankly, you're a sucker for the third one. Um, and uh, so he generalized this to authoritarian propaganda, per se. And I, I think there's a great deal of, of truth in that. So when we dehumanize people, it comes... May I add a layer of nuance? Please, there? please. And yes. this this is going to be very clear in my next book, the one that comes yes. out in in October. So I, I think there's there are two elements necessary. One is a pre-existing ideology. So in Nazi Germany, there was deep anti-Semitic beliefs going back uh, at least to the 13th century. That's a background, and that kind of stuff can remain latent. Hmm. Then. 20th century the social ecology changes right right there's economic hardship there's there is the, the the disaster of the first world war and then there are these far right groups responding to these conditions there's political chaos and you have know, battles between the communists and the freikorps and then you you have an environment in which then someone like Adolf Hitler can spark, Can it's like a match to dry kindling, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the crucial combination. That's what we saw in Rwanda with the the, the 1994 genocide. Yeah. That's what we saw in, in Bosnia, yeah. right? Deep history, ideo- in, baked-in ideology, and then a spark.
0: Yeah, this, and it's amazing how much, again, the environment... Will facilitate those conditions and you know, whether created or real, it's the, it's, it's the belief, it's the perception of the belief. recipient, yeah. which I find is, is, and again, this is, it, it speaks so much to this point that I, that I often talk about. We have this idea that we are hugely autonomous, independent, rational thinkers who feel that no no i i know the difference um yeah. which is so not true and we are and i and i love how you finished this book and, and and i certainly don't want to come to the end on it at all but i think you brought it you you, you mentioned it already that we are all so susceptible to it um that sure. Sure. It's, it's such a it's it's such a real point that i think is probably for me personally the biggest takeaway of your book is that hey w- wake up i mean and i think we're you know, without I'm not sure if there was a you know Freudian slip or or you know we we're seeing this we'll have have seen it in recent American past about make America great again. Yeah, um, no, it wasn't it was quite deliberate. Yeah, I was yeah because of what I study actually when
1: when Donald Trump mm. as soon as he threw his hat in the ring and he made his his first speech, it followed precisely the pattern that I just described to yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And I thought, oh boy. You know, my well-meaning liberal friends patted me on the head. No, he's he's a clown. No, he's not a clown. And there's this background there, right? So Trump's no longer president. That doesn't make it go away. No,
0: that's right. As we saw on January 6th. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The storming of the capital, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's, 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 it's so simmering below the surface. And again, whether this is our in-group, out-group need, uh, we saw it in Australia. I mean, <laughs> you know, we are a multicultural nation like the US, mm-hmm. uh, and we saw. It certainly wasn't racialized initially, but it kind of grew from it. But during COVID, we started with, you know, toilet paper crisis, and there were people having fights. Uh, physical applications mm-hmm. in supermarkets over toilet paper. Very soon we started, you know, the, the, the increase of assaults towards Asians. Uh, and again, this, age. yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Trump's, uh, you know, Kung flu and so on and so forth, which most people will laugh at. Ah, he's just joking. No, 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 mm-hmm. no. You, you're missing the point that is, yeah. yes, it's funny, quote unquote, Um if taken in isolation as a single, but even so, it's still part of the the same game of that's right. othering someone. That's right, um, and that's the and that's that's the that's the danger. And you, when you say it's it's not over with Trump in the US, I, I sense there's there's more to that statement. Do you see this? The narrative is still powerful. Um, well, and I guess COVID is has become racialized or politicized. Uh oh, yes, speaking yes. to the Our, same points, isn't very it? Very much so. I mean there are a, a
1: large percentage of the population still regards the last election as illegitimate. Mm. Uh the crazy uh QAnon conspiracy mm. theories, which are just new editions of the medieval anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, are running rampant, not just in the United States in Europe too now. Um the 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 fact is there I think there are two things going on. Uh one is the United States, like many colonial nations, you know, na- well, nations generally are born in violence. Mm-hmm. But the United States has never had to really own up to it. I mean, when you lose, then you have to own up. Germany had to own up, they lost. Mm-hmm. Well, we were never brought to our knees. So there is this denial of the real horrible atrocities that are baked into our history that are incompatible with the American exceptionalism, this cherished illusion that many people hold dear, and they feel it slipping away from them. They fear that the American empire is going down the drain. know, <laughs> the Chinese empire is rising. And we're, you know, all empires see their, their day. And so that's a perfect storm, right, for for this sort of this sort of thing. It's still there, it's still in the background, it's still dangerous. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going away anytime soon. And we need to recognize that.
0: And I think this, this kind of reminds me of a of a point that you 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 make in the book that dehumanization it, as, as you described it doesn't include moral disengagement, but rather it's yes. viewed and presented and exceptionally moralistic, which is what it's the right thing to do. Stand up for your people, stand up for your country, fight yeah. for your survival, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Yeah, so this is this is again so important. I think the psychologists who talk about moral disengagement, without qualifications, that's very very misleading. Look, you can take any genocide. The genocide heirs, the perpetrators, see themselves as saving the world from evil. Mm. Right? They're doing the right. They have a they in their eyes. They have a moral obligation to do this. Heinrich Himmler's famous Poznan speech to mm. SS officers. He said, "Look, you know." It takes a lot of moral strength to see a thousand corpses lined up. He's referring to the Holocaust, yeah. right? To do your duty uh, in the face of the natural human weakness of finding this repugnant. And that's just classic. So um, so we, we have to understand that the people who engage in these actions are not cackling villains. Mm. And we also have to understand they're not monsters. To dehumanize the dehumanizers is a terrible mistake, right? It's a form of distancing. What we need to do is look into that mirror that they hold up to us about what is possible for us. Mm. And, you know, everyone and their uncle says, well, Mm. you know, if I lived in the Jim Crow South in 1890, I wouldn't have Mm. been a spectator in a mass lynching. Yeah, right. Tell
0: me again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you make the point. In fact, I had that, uh, that page uh, bookmarked because I was going to read the passage, but uh, I think you, you, it's easy to be moral heroes in our fantasies. Dehumanization isn't something that's a choice. Imagining that it's something that's within our conscious control is to greatly underestimate its danger. Uh, I, I, I love that passage because, and again, it speaks to this the, the environment and, and you use the word marinate. I love that because that really speaks to, 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 this kind of saturation of the environment within us, and therefore dehumanization ceases to be a choice. Um, yeah. Maybe okay. I can ask you to just go talk about that a little bit more because it might not be necessarily as totally obvious and evident what you mean by dehumanization is not a choice. Well,
1: it, it's, it, I think we should look at dehumanization as something that happens to us, that there are responses that we have, to certain kinds of circumstances and um, they, they overtake <laughs> they, they overtake us right so uh, you know by analogy if suppose that um, you are on, on the grand canyon <laughs> there's there's a, a platform mm-hmm. that you can walk out over and it's it's a transparent platform you look down and and it's a, it's a sheer drop right now, almost everyone cannot help but get weak in the knees and reach for the rail. You know, you wouldn't have stepped on the damn thing if you thought there was the slightest chance of falling. You know that. Mm. But these responses happen to you, mm. right? And you can't turn them off. You can't, I choose not to be scared here. That, that's, that's unrealistic. That's unrealistic. This is true of many aspects of ourselves. We kind of take these things for granted, but Mm. it's not like we are autonomous beings separate from the world around us. Right? We are deeply entangled with with the world around us, and in particular, the social forces that make us who we are. Look, when I went to high school, there were boys there who would brag about, white boys who would brag about hunting for black kids with their Pellet guns on weekends for fun. They thought it was perfectly okay. Well, why did they think it was perfectly okay? That was the whole environment in which they were formed. Mm, yeah. They were formed. Yeah. That the environment makes us and sustains certain things and discourages other things. And it's the peak of hubris. Mm. To, to think that we are, it's a Victorian fantasy that we are masters of our soul and so on. We're not. That's why social and political action are vitally important for constraining some of our worst tendencies.
0: That's, uh, that is so wonderful. And again, it echoes uh, a lot of what I discussed with Shannon. And we we, we we discussed this point in relation to soldiers committing acts of war crimes and atrocities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about the effects of constant deployment, the gradual desensitization to combat, to human suffering. And and we know through research that evidence reduces our ability to make ethical uh, decisions. The fatigue reduces our ability to make ethical decisions. Losing someone close to you does the same. So, therefore, we ought not to be surprised when we put our men and women in uniform into these extraordinary situations without the means to come back down to de- to to have a respite of the deployment, but we yeah. send them back in, back in, back in. We can't be surprised that ultimately they will cross that line.
1: Yes. No, that's absolutely true. First of all, the whole experience is grossly underestimated. I, mm. I find it infuriating when uh when it said, well, you know, this combat veteran has PTSD, like it's a flu or something. Yeah. This is it's a much this is a much more serious thing. It's 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 a well the Nazis actually took it more seriously. They called it a burdening of the soul. Mm. They understood that the men who committed these mass killings in the East, you know, tens of thousands of Jews shot in the back of the head, that it 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 wrecked them. In fact, the the project of using gas chambers was in the service of what Himmler called humane killing. Mm. Right. Humane to the perpetrator. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and, and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely he was absolutely right. So there's that basic contradictory situation that any combatant is is placed in. And especially, you know, it's different. Like if you have a personal gripe. Mm, mm, mm. Right. Um, but there, the motivation just isn't there. So then the combatant is placed in the situation. Well, there are the natural inhibitions against killing and the injunction to kill and the expectation to kill. Well, you know, how do you deal with that? You find some way of dealing with it. It extracts a price. Now, when it's repeated over and over and over and people get worn down and, you know, the the burdens are. Vast. The spiritual burden, burden I think, of, of war is, mm. is, is vast. Mm. And we're really stupid about it. We're really, we just think, yeah, people can just come in and somehow miraculously adjust mm. to, uh, to civilian life. You know, in many other cultures, this is not the case. I, I did a study, published this a paper. I go into this in great detail, by the way, in my next book about practices so one of the sources of evidence that killing's a problem is the fact that in cultures worldwide returning soldiers are felt to be contaminated by the act of killing even in the christian middle ages uh, peter verkamp has a whole book about this like Knights coming back from the Crusades—if they had killed, they had to undergo processes of purification. They had to do penance because the stain of blood was on their soul. Uh, there are cultures in which it was thought you you contract an illness mm. if you if when you kill, and special treatment has to be done. So this is far wiser than this. You're a hero.
0: Rah 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 stuff. That. That we get in in secular yeah, culture, st- standing ovations and and celebrating for standing up for what is right and so on, yeah. which is again, I think it oftentimes pours salt to the wound. I mean, I, in fact, I, in my in a recent episode, I spoke to a young British soldier who was tried for war crimes in Iraq. Um, he was one of the first ones in Basra in 2003, and he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. It was a decision that haunts him uh, where he they were doing uh, a kind of wedding of people as a way to um, disincentivize looting, right? So everybody's walking the street wet. There's a shame in the cultural context that everybody knows you were trying to loot. So they were um, dropping off some looters. Uh, by a river, one of them couldn't swim, uh, but they had to withdraw and and, and basically pull back. Uh, so ultimately, a 15-year-old boy died. Mm. And he was tried and ultimately cleared for, for the war crimes. But the, 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 the profound trauma that he carries from yeah. basically having been put into this situation through no will of his own and certainly being unprepared for it, but to have to deal with this as a, without, and 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 when the war crimes investigation started, he was ostracized. He was basically Mm -hmm. the the defense, the army washed their hands off him and he was on his own. That's how he describes it. Uh, And therefore he didn't have anyone to share this experience with. He suffered exceptional trauma, tried to commit suicide four times. I mean, a really, really moving story about this lack of connection to the very people that sent him to do this job, and through no fault of his own, ultimately, because the environment created, he was just mm-hmm. unlucky that his state of mind, his thinking, interplayed with that environment there and then at that yeah. point in time, and that his path crossed the path of that unfortunate fifteen-year-old Iraqi boy who died uh, in yeah. the river. It's, uh, it's, it's, and I think it's something that we don't, we really don't give enough credit. We have. We have a tendency. We're experiencing this in Australia, and I have to be careful not to not to you know judge this too far. But we have um, some of our special forces uh, under allegation of uh, of war crimes at the moment, and it's it seems to me like a very easy thing to say the few bad apples or to dehumanize, as you as you said, dehumanize the dehumanizers or alleged dehumanizers. Yeah. But that is such a. It feels to me like we're just washing our hands. Yeah. You know, so that we may continue on enjoying our bliss uh, in this wonderful nation of ours, having ticked the conscience box, and that you know we have mm-hmm. done our, we have upheld our civility and our morality by prosecuting these bad, few bad apples. But it's so much bigger than that. When we have created yeah, conditions for it, right? Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's a really it's a it's a it's a painful, That's tragic. It's yeah. tragic. And this is not to say that we shouldn't prosecute atrocities and so on. It's far from that. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Nor should, nor do I condone uh, crimes of any nature. But we need to look at this as a as an ecosystem that's living and breathing and facilitates it. Right.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Perfectly right. And uh, I mean, the fact that you had to say what you just just said. I mean, this should be self evident Mm. uh, that. The the bad apples argument is almost always wrong for one reason or another. And it is an ecosystem. And we have to understand the burdening of the soul to use that Nazi expression. That, you know, we have to ask questions like, how did this happen? We have to sincerely ask that. Not simply, you're bad. That's not an explanation of anything. Mm. How did it happen? What are the forces at play? Even people who do terrible things, are basically, I believe, compassionate attitude is important. That does not mean they yeah. should
0: not be prosecuted. I shouldn't have to say that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have to say that. that's right. But but I I couldn't agree more. and and I find this, and I've said this in my podcast before, that for for somebody of my ethnic background, I've I've made it clear that I can empathize with the Serbs who have, you know, exterminated, yeah. not, which is never to say that I justify it or support it, endorse it in any way. But mm-hmm. I think it's an important, we, we have to do that in order to rationalize what's actually happened and to explain it so that we don't become the very victims of the, exactly. mm-hmm. because it's so easy to then, uh, if, you know, and, and we hear this often, particularly from our most hardened warriors, you have to fight evil with evil. But but where does yeah, yeah, it's the kind of and as Shannon calls it the race to the bottom which i i think it's great as well i mean i think it's a it's mm-hmm. a it's a great way to think of it right um it's a yeah i i it's a it's a scary realization i think, and one that's very uncomfortable. To think that we are all capable of this, and I think um, is it was a uh, Milgram, Stanley Milgram's experiment on uh, which I think has had some methodolo- methodological questions asked, but I think yeah. the, it's been repeated sufficiently to stand uh, firm, you know. Post, and it, this was post Nuremberg trials about the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, who will who will apply the electricity uh, yeah. up to the kind of lethal levels. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that should that should have back in the, I think it was well, the late sixties, early seventies, whatever that experiment was, mm-hmm. should have. Taken hold in our discourse more broadly in our politics,
1: yeah. Um, and, yeah,
0: and 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 it's not,
1: yeah, and and you know some of the one the, I don't think the lessons of the Milgram experiment have been digested properly. These people were not oh yeah turn the electricity up. They were struggling with themselves, right? They were sweating. They were if they had great they obeyed, even though it was against the, their the grain of, of their Nature, attitude. yeah, Right. So it's, it's not like evil and evil, right? It's well, like I said, look, genocide. are trying to save the world. Mm. And God's always on our side in war, <laughs> whoever we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Before we, uh, and I do want to ask him some, some kind of questions as we, as we kind of head towards our close on, on, on the next book that's coming up, uh, because this is such a big topic, I feel like we've, we've covered quite a lot, but is there something that you think we haven't covered? Or maybe actually the, the, the idea of the essence, I think it's an important one because I think you, 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 make, you, you, you explain that really well and in depth in both your books, uh, perhaps in, in less than human to, to some more depth than in, uh, in, on in humanity. But maybe it's worth to, to, to just touch on this kind of essence or the human essence, which then sure. is a bridge towards, kind of sure. this notion of dehumanization.
1: Sure, so let me let me try and be concise. This is a very important element of the psychology of dehumanization. So the psychologists from the late 1980s have been investigating something that they call psychological essentialism. What that is is a tendency of human beings to divide the world of living things up in two kinds, like racial thinking, that's Mm -hmm. also part of it, and think that, well, what makes any being a member of one of these categories is something deep inside of them. And that's called the essence. Now, it's very important to understand this is a way people tend to think it has no scientific you know there's no scientific basis yeah. it's radically incompatible with anything that science tells us so again it's cultural yeah, yeah well it it, is it i don't know i don't know if it's it certainly mm. is cultural i i don't know if it's purely cultural mm-hmm. i th- i think there may be dispositions which come psychological it may be a psychological disposition that comes to us very very easily for whatever reason no one knows the answer to this question all we do know is it's very very pervasive mm. now this is a really important element of my work because it addresses a problem here's the problem let's say you're a, a committed nazi you're an, you're an ss officer and let's say that i'm a jewish man which i am and you're looking at me and well there's nothing different about me mm, mm. than is you know from from anyone that you would regard as a bona fide human being. I wear clothes, I speak your language, I put up an umbrella when it rains, I love my kids, I I eat stuff that you eat, and so on and so forth. So how can you look at me and refer and think of me as to use the German term an untermensch, a subhuman?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Just the weirdness of that has led some people to say, well, dehumanization just couldn't be real. It just couldn't be real. But psychological essentialism, that body of psychological research, helps us with that. Mm. Because what's going on then is you're experiencing me as outwardly human, sort of like a a human appearing being, but inwardly lacking a human essence, inwardly where it matters, me being something else. So I'm kind of a counterfeit human being to you, mm. right? So appearances are deceptive. Again, this brings us back to race. Why did the Nazis make Jews wear yellow stars? Because they couldn't look at them and, and tell them apart from anyone else, right? So the star is sort of a badge of the of the essence, the racial essence, and yeah. taking it further, the sub, subhuman essence. Now, so that's that's really, really, really crucial. When we dehumanize others, We don't deny that they appear human. We deny that they are inside human. And claims about evil typically come into this. Now, you said, is there anything I haven't said? Let me add one more piece to the puzzle. I said right at the beginning of this conversation, which, by the way, I've enjoyed very, very much.
0: Yeah, uh, as
1: have I. Yeah. To dehumanize people is not simply to think of them as subhuman animals i use the term subhuman creatures Hmm. and here's why dehumanization begins as as regarding others as less than human animals as either traditionally unclean animals and that's going to vary from culture to culture so you know say in the middle east dog is a a traditionally unclean animal in states it's man's best friend Hmm. You know, rats, lice, so on and so forth, or dangerous predators, bloodthirsty predators. uh In combat, by the way, there's a third one which happens, which is the the other is seen as a game animal, some uh, being to be shot for for sport. Okay, so that's how it starts. So you have some clever propagandist that wants us to go out and kill, and says, "Well, you know." They're not really human beings. And, you know, we take this on their authority. They're not really human beings. Uh, That makes it permissible to do things to them that we don't do to human beings. You know, we kill non human animals all the time. We swat mosquitoes and slaughter sheep and so on and so forth. And they're, so they're, it becomes permissible, but it also becomes obligatory. Right. So people aren't dehumanized as cute puppies and butterflies. They're, they're creatures that need to be killed. Right. They're a threat. They're That's a threat. danger. Yeah. So it's motivating as well. But it doesn't stop there, you see, because, as I said, we're hypersocial creatures. We can't help. When we look into the face of another person, we can't help seeing human. We can't help responding to them as human beings. So what happens then, when, when, when people are placed in this intensely contradictory situation, yeah. is on one hand, they see the other as a subhuman animal. On the other hand, they see them as a human being. And the fusion of these two states produces a very, very disturbing cocktail. It turns the other into a monster, into a demonic being.
0: Yeah. To resolve that cognitive dissonance, right?
1: Because you have to resolve it. That's right. Right. So they are all human and all subhuman together. They're monsters. They're demons. And part of the tragedy of that, then, if we take it out of the the warfare situation, let's put it in the genocidal situation. I don't think there's such a tidy distinction between (laughs) warfare and genocide, by the way. It's often then the most vulnerable members of a population who are imagined to be the most formidable, the most powerful, the most dangerous, because that's what monsters are, right? Mm. Right? You know, African-Americans in the aftermath of the Mm. Civil War, incredibly vulnerable population, Black men were represented as monstrous beasts, ravenous, killing and raping, Mm. Uh, Jews in the nineteen thirties in Germany,
0: you know, we find this again
1: and again and again and again
0: and again. Well, refugees recently, in refugees, the US in particular, uh, the kind of yes, yes, the, yes. The, the trains right. coming up and rapists and murderers and. But and we saw that the same in Europe as well to two thousand fifteen as well. That is so. That is so powerful. I, I, I really don't know how we where we go from here as a, as a civilization, because it, it, it just doesn't seem to be something that we're willing to contend with. It, it seems to me like we just keep, you know, repeating the same, we're falling for the same mistakes time and time again.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it's <laughs> All of recorded history. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. So how
0: do we, so, so maybe that's then a question to, to maybe uh, as if, if, if and I know I'm not sure if you would describe yourself as an optimist or, or maybe a pessimist, but <laughs> no. Not um, I'm, I, I take the the line from Cornell
1: West. I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Okay. Yeah. If I weren't no, hopeful, that's... I wouldn't write these books. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. It, we, we, it doesn't have to be this way. Hmm. And but I don't have the illusion that I'm going to change anything much by, by writing these books. But look, we've got to we've got to wake up to this because we've got catastrophic climate change just over the horizon. I mean, there's a a forecast now of collapse uh, by 2040. There are going to be refugee problems like the world has never seen. Um, It it will be a perfect storm for the very, very worst atrocities that human beings can communicate, can, can commit, you know? Um, So, We've got to, and it's possible. Look, this is why the discourse of evil and so on is so damn stupid. If, if you want to dismantle something, if you want to take it apart, you need to understand how it works. Hmm. Calling it evil does not contribute a sh- shred to understanding. We need to pop the hood, you know, look under the bonnet, see how the parts are interacting. And do something about it based on that knowledge. And I make various suggestions in the final chapter of the book. The problem is, of course, there are always people in positions of power who have an investment in us marching out to to harm others. Hmm. Um, that's the problem. And they and the dehumanizing stories are the best stories. You know, people say counter stories. Now, fear works. Way better than than kindness and compassion when you're trying to motivate
0: people. Yeah, it's a yeah, exactly. It's a great motivator, and therefore interests override values. And I think that's a you know ongoing debate yeah. about you know war is do we go to or, or even geopolitics is interests versus uh, values. Yeah. Maybe we can uh, kind of st- start bringing it so close. but m- m- you, I, I know that in the last chapter you do talk about some of those uh, ways that we can tackle this. Uh, maybe we can take a minute just to, to kind of give us some of your most critical ways that we should be uh, trying to, or, or what are yeah. some of the signs that we are, we are falling victim ourselves to some of these?
1: All the times. It's always you know.
0: a tenuous mm.
1: balance, right? So one of the things that keeps us, Somewhat safe are robust social institutions, freedom of speech and independent judiciary, you know, freedom of the press and all all that. Mm. Now, all of these can be exploited by people who want us to do bad things. Nazis were always complaining, you know, their freedom of the speech was being interfered mm. with. They actually had posters of Hitler with, a, you know, like a mm. piece of tape over his mouth. He was being silenced by the communists and so on. Um, there again yeah but, but these are these are all important things we also have to know ourselves right we have to know that we have this disposition to respond to political forces in these very destructive ways there's no vaccination there's no vaccine it's worse than covid right mm. there's no vaccine so what's required is knowledge and vigilance and this should be part of everyone's education third history a proper understanding of history not the garbage that most people are taught in whatever nation they belong to Mm -hmm. you know the, the flattering picture hang out your dirty laundry you know nations are born in violence it doesn't mean you're uniquely bad yeah right unless see because that's humbling you see if we've if we've done it we can do it again maybe we're doing it now Maybe we're doing it to prisoners. Maybe we're doing it to racial minorities. So those are the sorts of things I, I discuss in the, the final chapter mm. of on inhumanity. But there's a there's another one, which I don't discuss there, which is the most important of all. Uh, propagandists exploit feelings of vulnerability. This is actually an idea I, I get from Freud. It, mm. His theory of religion is, you know, part of being human is, to recognize a kind of helplessness in the face of the future, in the face of the future, the forces of nature and, and human aggression and cruelty and injustice. And the response to that feeling of helplessness is to seek salvation and religion offers us the illusion of salvation. And mm-hmm. I think that authoritarian politics <laughs> and even non-authoritarian politics appeals, it appeals to the same things. Mm. Now, it's a lot easier to get people to feel vulnerable and helpless if they are objectively vulnerable and, helplessness and helpless in ways that are not necessary. If they don't have enough to eat, if they don't have health care, if they're threatened by disease, right? Give people enough to eat. Give them basic securities. I think that's our best shot in protecting them may it make it doesn't solve the problem nothing solves the problem but it makes people a little less likely to to treat the authoritarian politician as some kind of a messiah that's going to deliver salvation for, mm-hmm. to them
0: and that's going to prevent this inevitable decline of my my people my life my lifestyle right. um you know the the what i have now is at risk uh, and so exactly on, which yeah. is uh, that is so so profound and, and and hugely important and i think we see this i mean i can just think of examples now uh, again most recently with with your beloved uh, president mr trump um you know he's used and, and, and i shouldn't even laugh at him because i think that then makes it comical i really shouldn't do that mm-hmm. uh, because it's not comical it's it's real uh, it's so easy to laugh him off as a joker which is anything but um because he's, he's had a number of these. He's, he's ticked all of these boxes that you're talking about. Yeah. He's still at it too. Yeah. Which is, uh, and now with social media and the, the ability of technology to touch us and the funny, for the information and the misinformation, disinformation to find us is so yeah. much more prevalent. Yeah. Uh, it's almost becomes, we've taken propaganda to scale. Uh, through That's right. information, actually reaching out to us and finding us, as opposed to we us needing to go and find information and and, and yeah. interact with it. Um, maybe my last question then is uh, is is to just talk about your your the next book, which is Making Monsters: uh, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. Uh, you've you've touched on a, a key points, a, f- a few key points about it. But what, what's this book about, and what what motivated uh, this book? And I guess it's it's still part of that same evolution of your thinking uh, on this subject. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so this book I actually began before I began the last book. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, this, this the, the Making Monster, so On in Humanity is written for a very, very broad audience. Mm. I wanted to write a book free of jargon, free even of text references as much as possible. There's, you know, further reading section in the back. Uh, short chapters you could just pick up and read for 45 minutes, put it down. Each chapter is pretty much self contained.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. The Making Monsters covers a lot of the same territory, broadly conceived, but in much, much greater depth, much greater depth about everything addressed in On Inhumanity. And it includes some other topics. So for instance, just to name one, I have an extended case study of anti-Semitic beliefs from the Middle Ages to the present, focusing on the persistence of specific ideas and discussing this in the context of what I call the apparatuses of reproduction. So you're talking about you know, the, the, the internet Mm -hmm. ideas in order to proliferate in order to become ideologies, they have to be copied. They have to be, you know, reproduced again and again and again to proliferate. Right. Now in the middle ages, this was really hard to Mm -hmm. do, right? Mm -hmm. Most people were illiterate. So they got their images of Jews from works of art, decorating churches say, and passion plays, Around Easter time. But you had to come into town, you know, to see these things. It's very slow, very clumsy. In the eight in the 17th century, and even more so in the 18th century, when literacy became more widespread Hmm. in Europe, the proliferation of anti-Semitic literature became much more, it happened quicker, it was bigger, it was more widespread. And we get to the the early 20th century, part of, again, the Nazi genius was radio. Mm. So so, uh, Josef Goebbels, I actually talk about this in On Humanity as well, Mm. but I go into a lot greater depth in making monsters, made an inexpensive radio receiver available to ordinary Germans. So the propaganda could be piped in, mixed with entertainment and so on. Right, so again, it's by an order of magnitude. Anything that distributes information can distribute misinformation. And now we have the internet. It's, you know, it's totally, the internet is a wonderful thing, but it's a correspondingly dangerous thing. Like all of these, books are dangerous, right? Radio is dangerous. Internet is dangerous. It's, It's not solely, you know, these newfangled things. Yeah, to speak
0: like old fogies. yeah but that's no that's that's so important because i mean i just reflect on on uh, when i worked in iraq the the facebook is is the means of communication this is a couple of years ago i'm, I'm sure it's still the case mm-hmm. and when you go and purchase a phone uh, if you purchase a certain company you get free facebook yeah uh, so you don't have to spend any money because usually it's kind of yeah. prepaid type stuff uh, which to me is that th- that's Especially given what we know of Facebook since then, and its power, and the algorithms, and the kind of stovepiping uh, that mm-hmm. it's responsible for, again, that lends itself so powerfully to it because you are enabling, yeah. you're giving, like Goebbels gave the uh, the yeah. sisters, you're giving a phone with Facebook, and that becomes your world. That becomes an environment. Everything is done through Facebook. All emotions that we experience as humans are shared through. Uh, facebook yes. you know it's news yes. it's joy it's happiness it's sadness it's uh, fear etc it's all through facebook of course there's there's some change now uh, to to try and change that but that will take um take some yeah, time but, but you know there the, the the the
1: real dangerous people just migrating to to other platforms
0: yeah yeah that's yeah. exactly right david it's a uh, uh, I am so truly humbled to have spoken to you and for you to have given me so much of your time. Uh, I think this is such an important topic, and I really look forward to reading your next book. Uh, when did you say it's coming out? October. October
1: 12th, October 12th in the United States. I think in Great Britain and Australia,
0: it's October 29th. Wonderful. Well, I definitely look forward to reading it, uh, and I also hope to, again, touch base in the future. Uh, Absolutely. any a wonderful, time. wonderful conversation.
1: Anytime. Thank you again for inviting me. And uh, I'm humbled that you're humbled. Thank you for your time, Dave. Bye-bye, Matt.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.